You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 64 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And on this week's show, we have another former GB and England international, Chris Haslim. He is now a coach, uh, an assistant coach at the NCAA Division I school, Montana State University in the US. So it gave us a great opportunity to not only talk about all the impressive things he did over his 13-year pro career, but also his experiences on the other side of the game, uh, college athletics, recruiting, the difference between British prospects uh, compared to uh, uh, prospects from other countries and all that other good stuff. Uh, I must say that I was a little bit uh, more advanced in my planning. So this was actually recorded a week ago and a lot can change in a week. And we spent a lot of time talking about COVID, uh, the coronavirus pandemic, how it's been affecting the British student athletes that are currently in the UK and were at the time stranded um, with the travel ban in place and embassies closed uh, with no sign of them being able to get their visas to be able to return to the States. Since this has been recorded, uh, a number of things have actually changed. Um, Players, student athletes on visas are allowed to fly now despite the travel ban. Uh, US embassies are slowly starting to open up to allow uh, incoming freshmen that don't have their visas to be able to get their F1 visas. Um, So that is, even though it's interesting to talk about and you can kind of hear the issues that have been going on over the last few weeks, months for British student athletes that are in the UK, um, those rules and what was going on has actually changed and been updated. So it's just worth keeping keeping that in mind as you're listening. Uh, Before we do get into the show, as always, got to give a quick mention to our Patreon account. We've had a few more uh, Patreons sign up recently. If you go check out patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash h-o-o-p-s-f-i-x there you can sign up to give us a monthly contribution of as much or as little as you'd like to help us do the work that we're doing it costs the price of a cup of coffee even less or more than that if you want to help support the work we're doing uh, we cannot do it without your support so please go and check it out and consider reaching into your pocket and giving a little bit of money every single month to help us build this media empire that we are trying to build as always, if you have any feedback, uh, you can reach out to me on every single social media platform at HoopsFix. Uh, you can drop me an email if you prefer private communication, sam at hoopsfix.com. If you're listening on iTunes, please take two seconds to give us a rating and review. I think we're about 78 uh, ratings now. I'd love to get us over the 80 marks, so please take two seconds to get your phone out of your pocket, um, load up your podcast player and give us a five-star rating and, and uh, some feedback and a review that we'll, I'll read out on the show in the intro. And if you're watching on YouTube, please leave a comment below. Let, let me know your thoughts. Um, let me know what you think. Let's get some discussion going. Anyway... That's enough from me. Uh, here is this week's show with me and Chris Haslam. All right, take two. Uh, as we have just learnt that we've just started recording, we did 35 minutes and um, my laptop decided to freeze and we lost the file, so we're starting again. I'm very frustrated, but we're going to uh, churn it on, keep on going, and I appreciate you sticking with me. So, um, we're going to recap kind of what we started talking about uh, to begin with is just the COVID situation. Uh, obviously, you're at Montana State at the moment. Um, you know, college athletics is in a bit of a situation. We've got a bunch of British student athletes here in the UK that are unable to get to um, the USA at the moment because of the travel ban and embassies being closed. Kind of, yeah, what is your take on um, COVID, the impact on, on British student athletes and I guess college athletics as a whole? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously right now, especially with, as you said, British players or, you know, and all international student athletes, uh, you know, it's, they're in a, you know, a bind, uh, you know, obviously with the travel ban, um, you know, the 
borders being closed, obviously, to, to the UK and, and uh, you know, your Schengen areas or Schengen countries. Um, so it's up in the air, not knowing, uh, you know, for returning players, you know, when the border will be open, will, will, the, will they be allowed to, to get back into the US before the new school year starts? Um, and then I think it's going to most impact the incoming freshman class uh, because of the again with the with the travel ban, but obviously with their inability to um, get their student visas, with you know the U.S. embassies being closed worldwide. Uh, I know in the past couple of days some have started to open up again, um, so hopefully that's a good sign for you know the international student athletes that maybe the borders will open up to them. They'll they'll have be exempt from the travel ban. Fingers crossed. Um, but, you know, we're just sitting and, and, and checking, you know, daily what the situation is, um, and, and trying to stay positive that everything will work out, um, to, to, you know, to get these, uh, players back to campus. And just to be clear, so for, for, for the freshmen, um, the reason it's, it's impacting them more is because that, that F1 visa is uh, you, once you once you get it, it's a five-year student-athlete visa, so you don't have to renew it. So with the embassies being closed, the freshmen can't actually get the visa in the first place, which means they won't be able to get to the States. Exactly. Exactly right. Um, that's, that's the issue. Now, obviously, with the NJCAA, the Junior College Athletic Association, obviously have moved um, four sports, you know, as, you know basketball, you know, it's now going to start in January. Uh, practice will start January the 11th. First games are January the 22nd. Maybe that will help the British lads because I know obviously there's there's several that are going the junior college route. Um, you know, I know obviously there's the three Myersco lads that are going to Blinn um, Junior College in Texas, for example. But with that start date moved back, maybe that gives them time then to to be able to get their F1 student visa. You know, and go over at, at the Christmas break and, and start then, so they won't miss any games. We'll see. Um, you know, Division Two or NCA Division D twos are basically doing conference games only and starting again after Christmas. With with D- Division One, um, it's still up in the air. Nothing's changed. We're being told that you know in November, um, but. You know, there is rumor that maybe it will, you know, be pushed back into the spring semester and just be conference games only. So we've got to be fluid with how we go about things. But, um, but you know, there is a way around it for returning, you know, uh, international student athletes coming back to campuses in terms of quarantining for two weeks in a, in a country that doesn't have the travel ban placed on it. Uh, you know, as we were talking a little bit before, there's two Irish lads that have done two weeks in Croatia and are flying into the U.S. this Sunday. So I'm waiting to hear how that goes for them. Uh, but it might come down to it if, if if the borders don't truly open up. That would be the only option for, you know, British players to get in the country. Do you have any in- inclination, uh, like if you were to put money on what you see happening with Division 1. Do you think the likelihood is it will do the same thing and move to the spring semester, um, January 2021, or, or do you think that actually November start date could be very possible? Um, to be honest, 
either is not going to surprise me. I could see it where they'll push it back to the spring semester, start after Christmas, just do conference games, have your conference tournament, and then off you go, hopefully have an NCAA tournament. Um, but I'd, tr I'd like to think that by November, um, and maybe it's more doable with with college basketball, Division One basketball, in terms of maybe playing um, in front of with, with no crowd. Um, you know, we'll we'll see. Obviously, it's it's different than college football, um, but that wouldn't surprise me if we we go ahead and start in November and then play behind closed doors. When you're talking about the the long term impact, um, you know, COVID could have on on college athletics especially, well, right now everyone's trying to see whether or not the football season's going to start. Obviously, the college football uh, college football does, it works the biggest revenue generator for a lot of college athletics programs and subsidizes a lot of the other sports. Um, you know, when you talk about the impact that this is going to have long-term on college athletics, college basketball, uh, what would you say about it and what do you see end up happening? Yeah, I mean, if there isn't a college football season, I mean, it can really have disastrous uh, you know, consequences for a lot of athletic departments that rely so much on the revenue generated, um, you know, from their football programs to run their athletic departments. I mean, you know, there have been some conferences already that have moved the football season back to the, you know, back to the January or spring semester. You know, it's all if, if you know, again, you have to play in front of empty stadiums that's a huge hit. You know, the bigger conferences should be able to, you know, won't take quite as big of a hit because of the TV contracts uh, that they have. But, you know, for the kind of mid-level and, and down, um, you know, not having fans in the stadiums and, and losing that game, game day revenue uh, will really have a big effect, big negative effect. Um, you know, there's already been a lot of, you know, non-revenue programs at various universities around the country that have already been dropped um you know i know again stanford was it last week cut i think 11 maybe 10 11 12 um sports teams to to, to save money so if there's no college football season i could see a lot a lot of that uh or a lot of more of that happening has your um athletics director or whoever the person is responsible for the kind of budgets and stuff have they kind of said to you budgets are going to be cut this coming season this is what we need to prepare for has that not happened yet no there, there is our athletic director has, has said that you know in our budget you know each program's budget is getting cut they haven't made a final decision how much but kind of preparing for like a 10 percent cut 15 20 30 percent cut you know just be be prepared how, what does that look like um, so, you know, for us as our program and our staff, we've talked about that, you know, if there is a 20% cut, 30% cut, where do we trim the fat off what we need to get done, um, you know, this, this coming year for our program. So there's definitely, definitely going to be a budget cut. We just haven't been told by how much yet. So then for your program, if, if there was a cut of 20, 30%, where do you think you'd be able to save that money? What do you think would end up, you know, getting the snip, getting snipped? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, for us, the biggest thing not to try and be affected is is our recruiting budget. Obviously, recruiting is the lifeline of every program. Um, and then, you know, not being able to treat our guys in the right way. You know, how we travel, you know, 
on to road games, hotels, flights, meals, things of that sort, still to provide um, those at a, at a you know first class level. Um, you know, but it's to be honest, you know, I think I, I don't know exactly where we'll we'll cut things. Um, we'll see. I mean, there is to to maybe offset it. We've talked about maybe playing an extra you know buy game or guarantee game. Um, where you know the bigger schools and bigger conferences will pay pay other teams to come in and play them, so maybe we'll play an extra game to offset that budget cut. Um, so I think that would be a great way to do it. Um, so, but again, things are just kind of up in the air uh, right now. We're we're waiting to hear what the final decision is, and then we can go ahead and, and again, kind of change our budget and what it looks like. And then finally, on, on the topic of COVID, um, the British players that are that are in the UK and potentially, let's just say, you know, worst case scenario, they don't end up being able to, to get out to the States this season. Um, under current NCAA rules, of course, they're, they're not allowed to play or represent another team. Uh, you know, have there been any conversations with the NCAA or that you know that you're aware of of potentially making some amendments to the rules to allow players to continue to work on their game, play for a team here if they're not allowed to come back out for at least another year? Right. I haven't heard anything concrete, um, but I have to imagine the NCAA would have some common sense and, and change that rule. Um, you know, obviously, with the circumstances, it's unfair you know, on, on players, if if they obviously can't get back into the States, you, you know, you have to allow them to then play, you know, play, continue to, you know, you have, they can't go 10 months a year without playing. So I'd imagine it'd have to be some change in the rule and exemption. Um, uh, yeah, but I haven't heard anything concrete from the NCAA as of yet. Has there been any thoughts around potentially, you know, let's just say that, so the end of last season was cancelled. Let's say the first half of this season or, or a large part of this coming season ends up being cancelled, which I don't think is going to happen, but if, if it did happen, when you're talking about players' development, do you think we could end up with a whole generation of players that lose a crucial year, not necessarily at the college level, maybe even younger, you know, that are sort of coming through and miss out on a year of competition that really harms their development down the line? Yeah, of course. At that, you know, critical ages of, you know, 12 to 16, absolutely. You know, if if you can't play, you can't practice, uh, you know, it's kind of just individual workouts, you know, in a closed setting. Absolutely. Um, it could hurt that generation, you know, having that whole year, not to develop, not to play, um, you know, practice, uh, you know, the, the one for, for us, if there's no season, uh, you know, with the NCAA, if, if worst case scenario, then what do you do with the seniors? Do they get an extra year? But then you've got your freshman incoming class that you've signed. You're only allowed so many scholarships. So how is that dynamic going to work? I mean, that would be a mess for the NCA to, to figure out, sort out. Um, so, you know, who knows? Crazy. All right, that's enough of, enough of COVID. Uh, I think it's all, all we see every day at the moment. So it's, uh, it's, it's important to touch upon. But um, yeah, let's, let's, let's get into your career right. stuff. Um, the early days, I always like to start at the beginning. Uh, you know, your first exposure to basketball and how, how you ended up um, first starting playing the game. Yeah, I mean, like most kids, it was in my secondary school. I was actually kind of late. I was late, late to the game. I didn't really start playing until I was about 16, 16 and a half. Uh, you know, I, 
liked all sports growing up, would play, participate in any sport. You know, obviously traditional sports, football, rugby, cricket were the big three that I played a lot. Um, thankfully, one of the PE teachers at the secondary school, you know, was a basketball fan. He, he enjoyed playing. So, you know, he kind of taught us the game after school. Um, obviously, it's 16, 16 and a half when I started playing. I was already 6'8", 6'9". So that helped. Um, you know, my dad had played some basketball growing up. My dad's 6'10", 6'11". That's obviously where I get my height from. But, you know, he talked about basketball. And, and obviously, as you know, back then on Channel 4, you know, they played, you know, late night NBA games. So I ended up watching those games with, with my dad and really liked like the game obviously it's you know there was nothing like it in england you know so 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 and obviously being taught um immediately fell in love with the game um at the high school thankfully again my PE teacher you know looking back did a pretty good job coaching you know uh, fundamentals and 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 how to play the game and that gave me a great base and foundation and but like i said immediately fell in love with it and went from there do you think you had a natural affinity from it from the start um, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, obviously, you know, bigs were later to develop how our body moves, but I was always reasonably coordinated, you know, hand-eye coordination, you know, run, move, things of that sort. Um, the game did come reasonably naturally to me. And, and I get, you know, obviously my height was a, was a big help to begin with. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think I, I took to it pretty easily. And so you grew up in, in Southport. Can you talk about kind of like the, the basketball scene there and what you remember from, from when you first started playing? Yeah, so I mean, my first real kind of competition. So from my secondary school, I ended up then going down to my local YMCA. You had a junior team and a, and a men's team that played in, you know, the local leagues in the Northwest. Um, and again, got lucky, you know, with the, the, co the coaches that I had, at the local, you know, junior YMCA team. Again, really did a good job, um, you know, coach, coaching us. Um, really got a lot better in that kind of year that I, I played before I went to the States. Um, you know, the level of the junior basketball, or, you know, in the Northwest was really good, really good standard. So um, that, was, that was great. You know, I did end up playing, you know, on the men's team. Um, and again, had good competition and, and that really, that base, um, you know, to, to play at that level at a young age was really helpful. So you ended up soon up for Chester Jets under twenty under twenty three side, um, and that was that under was that under both Joe Fulbert and Mike Burton. Yeah, so again, I was you know playing for the local YMCA team, and we uh, I, we pl finished playing a game, and I, I honestly can't remember. Some guy came up to me afterwards and was like, "Hey, would you you know?" Chester Jets local have a you know under 23s you know junior program would love for you to come down and and train and practice with it so I was like okay that's fine went down there obviously it was Joe Forber and Mike Burton two you know <clears throat> British coaching legends and you know obviously it was more Joe Forber um, would go you know twice a week to train um, you know make it was about 50 minute drive 40 minute drive from Southport to Chester. And again, it was great. You know, Joe, I mean, again, developed me, took me to another level. I, uh, just working with him, obviously his discipline and knowledge of the game, you know, 
Um, it's what he does so well at that junior level. Um, good competition and, and, you know, played, played again at a higher level. Um, and it was, it, it was, it was big in my development for sure. His influence, you know, to this day. Are you still, do you still talk to him? Are you still in touch with him? Um, a little bit. We have, you know, obviously with kids, you know, the Manchester program, um, when I go back home, you know, from around popping and see him, it's been a little bit the last couple of years, but you know, we, we have been in contact for sure. So when you talk about kind of your generation, um, the guys coming through as a junior that you saw up and down the country that you were like, yeah, you know, like these guys are good. Who, who are the names that, that stick out that you that you remember? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of talent at that, you know, at that that, that time at the junior level. A lot of really good talent. Um, and the thing is, you know, I, you know, I starting late, and then obviously it was a short span from starting to play to you know I went to the went to the states. I really wasn't around the, the junior level you know, on, on a, you know, kind of nationally. Um, I didn't play any, you know, England under 16, under 18, whatever it was. Um, so I was a little limited, but it was kind of like word of mouth. Um, and the three, the three big names were Delmi Herriman, Steve Hansel and Danny Craven. Um, I actually, with Danny, I actually went to Manchester and played in some like open gym, you know, got some run down there. First saw him, you know, obviously he's 6'10", and he was amazing at that age. He was unbelievable. So far ahead of me, it was, I wasn't even in the same ballpark. Um, but it was like, oh, that's that's what I'm supposed to get to. You know, that's where I have to get to. Um, and then Delmi and Steve, you hear a lot, obviously, they were on the national level at an early age. Both went to the States as well. And it wasn't until I kind of came back um after that year of high school in that summer that i was around those guys and got to play play with them and you know meet them and now obviously played with them on the national team and, and really good friends obviously have, not having represented the junior junior national team you know you can't have had a lot of profile so so how did that move to the states uh for your senior year of high school come about <clears throat> so again just very lucky right place right time so when i was playing from you know my ymca team in southport there was an American guy named Bruce Parkinson, and he played at Purdue in the late 70s, early 80s, and he actually got drafted back then. I think it was like seven, eight rounds. He got drafted in the later rounds. But through his work, his company, he ended up, of all places, living in Southport. And he was probably early 40s, you know, and just was looking for a place to get some running. And so obviously he came down to the YMCA. Uh, we played. Um, and then after about two months, he, he, you know, one day after practice was just, have you ever thought about going to the States? You know, uh, and that, obviously I hadn't, no, I had no clue about high school basketball, NCAA, college basketball, college sports in the States, anything. But he's the one that first put that thought into my head, explained everything, talked to my parents. And originally I was actually going to um, go live with him back in Indiana and go to the high school where his sons went to. But the Indiana high school rules, I don't know, transfers or whatever, it didn't work out. Out. But then I talked to Joe Forber and Mike Burton about it, and they had a contact in Savannah, in Georgia, who through him, I got hooked up with the coach at the high school that I eventually went to, St. Andrews, got a host family. And really it was nine months, 10 months since I started playing then I went to the States. 
at that point, did you already know that you wanted to be a professional basketball player? Was that was you already aspiring to that, or was it very much just oh, I enjoy it and I'm just kind of just going to see what happens? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I wouldn't think about playing pro then. I was still young. No, no thought of it. It was the excitement of you know going to the states, um, playing at a higher level. Obviously, did my research. You know, speaking to the you know the Bruce who who put that thought in my head about going to the states started to understand what a big deal it was, you know, the game is, you know, a high school level at college over here and just thought, you know, I've got to go try. My parents were super supportive, you know, go do it, go try. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, but you've got to, got to go try. You can't have any regrets. So I went for it and it worked out. How did you find that transition uh, to American high school basketball from what you'd been used to in the UK? Oh, it's night and day, night and day. And I went, you know, I was at St. Andrews High School in, in Savannah, and it was a 2A or in a 2A classification. So in Georgia, the biggest class, classification is 4A. So I was kind of at a mid-level, kind of smaller high school, which looking back was was great for me. If I'd have gone to a big, you know, big uh, 4A school, I'd have probably got lost in the mix a little bit. So the fact that I went to a smaller school really benefited me, I think, looking back. Um, but you know, just the level of play of kids of that age was night and day compared to what I'd experienced, you know, in the UK, um, just the approach, you know, the practice every day, the intensity, the competitiveness, the coaching, everything was just a, a, a much higher level. And you, you won a state championship and were a player of the year. Yeah, that's right. You know, and again, just very lucky on a talented team, um, had some other good players on the team, really good high school coach. And we, you know, we ended up winning the state title, which was an unbelievable achievement, achievement, the first one in school history. Um, and I was fortunate enough that I got player of the year. So again, very lucky, just right place, right time. And uh, it, it, it worked out well. So at what point uh, from when you first got to the States, did the, did the colleges come knocking and kind of what are your memories of, you know, the entire recruiting process? Yeah, I mean, it was eye opening, obviously. Um, and, and college coaches came in pretty quickly. And, you know, you, I get it completely. There's a 6 11 kid that suddenly just appeared out of nowhere. So, you know, a lot of coaches out of curiosity, you know, started calling and, and coming, you know, to, to practices to watch early on. And it, it was eye opening. Um, you know, obviously, against, I mean, even at that point early on, knew just knew a little bit about college basketball, but not a lot. Um, was learning on the fly, um, but coaches um, and and you know it was. I mean, again, it was pretty fun, you know, to be wanted to get that attention at that early age. I mean, that's what it was about: leaving home, doing a year of high school, to eventually move on and play at the Division One level. So, who who were the schools that that were recruiting you, and kind of you know where did you go on visits to? Uh, how how was your selection process uh, being worked out in your head? Right. So, I mean, early on, you know, I had, you know, some local, you know, it's Georgia, Georgia Southern, obviously being in Georgia, um, you know, I actually had Florida and Florida State come in. And, but the biggest one early on was Vanderbilt, um, who came in, I went on a visit early and they actually wanted me to sign early. You know, I took my visit to, you know, in Nashville, Tennessee, unbelievable facility, unbelievable campus. Mind, mind blown. You know, I'd never seen anything like that, obviously, um, you know, 
at, at home, they wanted me to sign early. Um, and I didn't want to, cause obviously I'd only been in the States a couple of months and just wanted to, you know, we, we hadn't even played a game by that, at that point, it was just practice and workouts. <clears throat> so wanted to kind of play the season, you know, talk to some other schools, see some other places, take some other visits. So I wasn't ready or felt comfortable to make that decision early. Unfortunately, at the end of that season, the, the coach, the head coach took another job um, and the new coaching staff that came in had their own bigs that they were recruiting. And the head coach at Vanderbilt at his new program didn't need a big. So that opportunity kind of went. Uh, you know, I did take a, a visit to Florida State, which was, again, unbelievable experience. Um, they had a really good team. Pat Kennedy was the head coach, but, you know, they had uh, Sam Cassell, Bobby Sora, you know, two NBA, really good NBA players. They were ranked top 20 in the country. And, uh, you know, I went, watched them practice. And it was unbelievable. I mean, again, that was eye-opening, the standard of play, how big, how athletic, how skilled they were. Um but kind of came away at that time thinking I'm, I'm not ready for it. It's too high a level, obviously the ACC. And it was the right decision. I wasn't that good enough to play at that level. You know, uh, might have been a bench role player, but obviously didn't want that. I wanted to have the opportunity to play right away my first year and have that true, you know, four-year career and be developed and, you know, to, to, to play. Um, so, but that was interesting, you know, that was my first college football game. I went to 75,000 people in the stands. Again, never seen anything like it. And that was like, welcome to U.S. college athletics. This is big business. It's serious. Um, and again, eye-opening. So, uh, yeah, it was a great experience. So you ended up going to, to Wyoming. You know, what, what tipped the edge there? Um, what made you decide to, to, to choose Wyoming? Yeah, well, it was, you know, obviously signed in the second, in the April signing period with Wyoming. Um, and it was, it kind of came down to them and Virginia Tech. Um, you know, I had obviously some other schools in the mix, but it was really between those two schools. And, and really, to be honest, I would have gone to Virginia Tech, had a great visit, really liked the coaching staff. Um, um, but they had found out about me late. And so they'd already signed two players in the early signing period so didn't have a scholarship left and wanted me to go to a prep school in that area with the view of signing you know that that year after <clears throat> and i but i didn't really want to go the the prep school route and really in particularly because it was a military prep school that they wanted me to go to so yeah, with everything, you know, what the, what was involved with that, I was like, no, I don't want to get up at 6 a.m. and march and all this stuff. So, uh, but Wyoming did a great job recruiting me. Their head coach, my head coach, Joby Wright, was actually from Savannah. So he was actually at Miami of Ohio and then got the job uh, with he coached Wally Zerbiak. Went to the NCAA tournament with Miami of Ohio got the Wyoming job and knew about me because he's from Savannah and his circle of friends or whatever. So they recruited me, went out on a visit, really enjoyed my visit there. Um, actually went out on a visit with HL Coleman, who obviously played in the BBL for many years, really good player. And Pat Kelsey, who's now the head coach at Winthrop University. And we clicked right away. I really liked Coach Wright because he was a big man. Uh, you know, he played at Indiana, 
um, was an assistant under Bobby Knight at Indiana for 10 years. And his mantra, his thing was coaching bigs and he wanted to play through his bigs. So I really liked that idea to be, you know, developed by a, a true big man. And then the league, you know, back then it was the whack, you know, it's the Mountain West today, but it was a really good league. You know, Utah, BYU, San Diego State, UTEP, New Mexico, Colorado State, uh, Hawaii, really good league. But I thought it was a league that, again, I could play in, um, that I'd have the opportunity to play that first year. And then, you know, as I got to upperclassmen, you know, be a, be a, you know, a main rotation guy or a starter. The, that whole recruiting process, obviously now you're heavily involved in the recruitment side of things. Uh, and I always say I've got a lot of love for you because I know that you keep an eye out on all the British players and, and ensure that, um, you know, you're giving them an option to potentially come to Montana, Montana state. Um, how did your own recruitment process sort of impact how you recruit now? And I guess, what is your approach to uh, recruiting players? What are you thinking about when, you, when you're trying to sort of recruit a player to Montana State? Yeah, I mean, um, it was interesting. And obviously, it's a long time ago getting recruited. But, you know, everyone's different approach to recruiting. You know, each program, each coach, coaching staff is different. Um, you know, some are very aggressive. Some programs, you know, throw out a ton of offers, you know, to, to practically every kid. You know, a lot, you know, some do, do a great job and are very open, transparent, honest. And, then, you know, you have the coaches, the programs that, again, kind of that American fast talking, use car, car salesman pitch, you know, and it, it, it was interesting to see everyone's different approach and even that today. And, you know, for, for me, for us as a staff here at Montana State, we don't throw out a lot of offers. Um, we take the approach, again, open, honest, transparent. This is us. This is what we have. We have a great situation here on and off the court. And we, you know, I want to recruit kids who want to be at Montana State, you know, who have that genuine interest in, in, in us. I don't, you know, if I'm recruiting a kid or calling or texting or whatever, and I've got to keep chasing them and chasing them and chasing them, then I, you know, that's just wasted effort and energy when I can recruit a talented kid, you know, when I call, takes the call or calls me back or texts me back right away, you know, you, it's that two-way, you know, stream. Um, that's what I look for, you know, really excites me about a kid. Obviously, it has to be talented, competitive, you know, all those other things. But, you know, to recruit kids that, you know, want to be here. It's not like, oh, Montana State, but I've got the eye on a bigger prize, you know, uh, I'm not going to chase a kid like that. How would you say that British players might differ uh, to American players when you talk about recruiting? Do you think that, you know, maybe they are, they have less entitlement or expectation because because they're from the UK, so they're not kind of in that world as much? Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I'd be interested to hear the differences. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, for the most part, yes. You know, absolutely. You know, the excitement, obviously it's exciting to be recruited, you know, the British lads, um, you know, that entitlement isn't quite there, um, like it, like it can be here in, in the States. Um, you know, it's my experiences with English lads has, has been great. Now, obviously there have been, you know, some lads that again, oh, Montana state, oh no, they want to go to Florida state and, but not understanding the levels, you know, and that's, that's the biggest thing. I think it's definitely improved over, you know, the, seven years I've been at the division one level in terms of, 
coaches and kids understanding uh, more educated about college basketball and, you know, the different levels, different leagues, everything that's, uh, you know, what it takes to, to be at the Division One level, what it entails, um, you know, because my first few years there were kids, you know, who had got terrible advice, haven't got a clue, you know, parents don't know. And that's fine. I was in that situation too when I went. My parents didn't have a clue. I didn't really know. But it definitely has got better. Um, you know, obviously there are a ton of coaches who I'm friends with, keep in contact with, who do a great job giving kids advice. But for the most part, you know, uh, recruiting English kids is is very refreshing because of that lack of entitlement and genuine excitement to be recruited, genu- you know, excitement to take that next step, get to that next level and get over to the States. How much of an advantage do you think that the, the British connection is? Uh, do you think that, you know, players have had players said to you the fact that you're English, you know, makes them more likely to want to come to Montana State because you've got that kind of kind of common ground? Yeah, a little bit. You know, it definitely helps. I mean, you know, now I'm older and, you know, uh, it's, I think it definitely helps. It's definitely with parents as well. You know, the, I'm British, you know, I do take it a bit more personally, you know, with the British kids that come over. And and obviously, you know, not just to recruit to Montana State, but to help British kids. I had help when I came over. And again, I've you know, you've heard the horror stories of, you know, there's how many British kids are really talented that have had bad advice or got to the States and been put in the, you know, or got to the wrong situation where it's not what they thought. It's the wrong level. It's just not that they can't have success and they end up back in the UK in a worse situation. And just to avoid that with, you know, as many British lads, because there is a lot of talent, there's so much talent in England and, you know, whether it's division one, D2, like I said, JUCO, NAIA prep school, just helping these kids get to a situation over here where they can have excess and success and move on and have a great college experience, American experience. And hopefully further down the road, it sets them up to, potentially have a you know a pro career yeah so j- jumping back to, to your college career um so you're at wyoming for for four years uh, you know one of the things I've, I've seen you say is that uh you know you felt you underachieved in terms of the talent that you had on on the roster kind of is do you still look at it like that uh kind of what are your recollections recollections of of how you and your your squad sort of performed over the over your time there Yes. I mean, looking back, still think we underachieved. We had a lot of talent. Um, you know, we always finished a couple of games above 500, you know, mid-table in, in the conference. Um, never really made a big run in the conference tournament either in my, my four years. Um, but we, we had a lot of talent, but just didn't quite get over the hump. Maybe a little bit unlucky, just for various reasons, you know, never achieved what on paper we should have with the talent that we had. You know, I played my first two years with Theo Ratliff, who, you know, NBA lottery pick, NBA defensive player of the year. Uh, unbelie- I mean, unbelievable player, unbelievable athlete. But um, again, in his two years, I mean, uh, again, just w- we were good, just OK. But again, didn't didn't achieve what we, we should have looking back. How hard was it uh, playing against someone like Theo Ratliff for two years at, at practice? So my first year was like a nightmare, my absolute nightmare. Like literally, I couldn't get a shot off like the first two months of practice. I mean, he, I mean, he was six ten, long. I mean, to this day, one of the most athletic players I've been around. And it was his second jump 
you know, you could get him on a shot fake or get him off his feet, but he'd be back on the floor, back to the top of the square in an instant. And it was just that first year as a, you know, fresh face freshman, it, practice was a living hell. Thankfully, my second year, I started. So he was at the four and I was at the five. So basically in practice, we were on the same team. So it wasn't quite as bad when we, you know, scrimmage and play and practice. So it was a lot easier after that. But I mean, he's, like I said, his work ethic, he, he deserved everything that he got. Um, he was humble and worked so hard. Um, you know, and you could tell he was, you know, going to have a, a long, illustrious NBA career, which is what he did. How much do you think that impacted your, on your own sort of personal development and getting better? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, like I said, I, for two years, I had to put in the work on, and, and develop and get better. Like I said, I, after that first year, it was like, I can't have another year like that. You know, it was really difficult playing against him in practice, drills, etc. You know, I had to get better. Had to get better. There was no way around it. I had to develop, and and you know learn a way to play against. You know, I was never. Everyone would say I wasn't the most athletic, big. You know, so I had to you know develop moves back to the basket, be crafty, footwork. You know, uh, using my body, things of that sort, to be able to get shots off. You know, over those long, athletic, big guys. Yeah, I was going to say that the I spoke to Tony G. Um quickly before before chatting with you and you know one of the things he said was that he, he felt like your your game uh was ahead of its time in re in many ways uh because you were able to stretch the floor um but then also you know you've got you've sort of got the post moves when you talk about your your own development uh and i guess the progression that you've seen of the big man over over the period of time from from then until now um what would you say about it and how would you kind of i, well, I guess sort of assess your own take on on your own development yeah, I mean, I was always, you know, a true five man back to the basket, especially in college. Um, you know, back then the game was different, you know, slower paced, more physical, <coughs> excuse me, um, you know, playing through playing through the low post. And so, you know, I w really wasn't allowed out on the floor on the three point line. Um, it was all inside, maybe take an elbow jump shot if I was lucky, you know, if I didn't make it, I'd hear about it, you know, things of that sort, but it was be big, be physical, you know, control the paint, play down low, um, things of that sort. And really, the first big guy in my time actually was Keith Van Horn in our league at Utah, the Utah team. I mean, he was the one that where he, you know, get the rebound and he'd become a point forward and, and seeing his skill set was eye-opening as well. I mean, he was a really good player, obviously, but... Um, in, but for me in college, it was stay inside. Now it wasn't until, um, my first time with the England national team playing for Laszlo Nemeth. It was the summer I'd got done at Wyoming and we were, I was in training camp in, we were in Hungary and, you know, I would be out on the perimeter, whether, you know, to re ball reversal or whatever, and I'd be open and I wasn't even looking to shoot because obviously program from college. It was okay, reversible screen roll or just go post up, play inside. And Laszlo, you know, was like, if you're not going to shoot it, I'm not going to play you. If you're open, you can shoot it. I want you to shoot it. You've got the green light. If it's a good shot, shoot the ball. And and that was, you know, and he was persistent in that. And I got, you know, because I could always shoot. I always had pretty good touch. But again, wasn't it wasn't the done thing in college. But that was that different mentality to that European or international game Bigs have got to shoot, got to be able to stretch the floor. Um, and he gave me great confidence to go ahead and shoot the ball and 
that became, you know, it did become a, a big part of my game. Do you think your game would have been more suited to today's game? Or do you think you'd be able to have a even more successful career with the start of play from today compared to then? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. You know, with with its, you know, space and pace and the three three point shot being so prevalent. You know, the analytics is uh, in college in the NBA. Um, I think absolutely. You know, because I did become a pretty good three point shooter as my pro career developed. Um, you know, obviously I still, you know, was physical down low and, and my bread and butter was in, in the low post, things of that sort. But, you know, a different dimension as a, as a big that could be on the three point line and, and create space and then shoot the ball. Absolutely. I think today's style of play would have suited my game more. You kind of become recognized as a, a sort of um, a specialist big big man development coach uh you've obviously got a, a british big at the moment jabril bello you know when when you get a um the, a big coming to you that you're going to be working with what are the first things that you look at that you kind of the fundamentals that you want to make sure that they have in their sort of bag of tricks or whatever or that they have fundamentally down um to be able to sort of push them forward and develop them right i mean it's it's i mean it's really i try to keep things simple um you know, it's it's the biggest thing is instilling in bigs to to want contact, to love contact. You know, again in today's game, you know, there's no real true bigs anymore. It's a bit of a lost art. You know, bigs are wanting to be skilled and be perimeter players, and it's like, no, you know, your bread and butter down low, have that have that fundamental base of of playing with your back back to the basket. Um, and it's really, you know, footwork balance, um, initial post position, you know, playing low, um, but creating contact. And, and it's okay to be physical and, and, and use your body. You know, Jabril obviously uh, had a heck of a year for us this past year. You know, he was newcomer of the year in our league, third team or conference. And his development, he just got better and better as the year went on. But he's, you know, he's embraced being a, you know, a true big. Now he can stretch the floor and he can shoot it and he can face up, you know, some and, developing that side of his game but having that fundamental base of being a true big being comfortable with your back to the basket on the low block okay being able to turn and face up down there and it's just it's a move and a counter move that's it move and a counter move you don't need to be Akeem Olajuwon or Kevin McHale and you know have a counter to the counter to the counter move you know that can come down the road but um, work balance and, and positioning to, to to make things simple down there for you why do you think that uh, we haven't seen more bigs uh, use the sky hook? Well, because everyone wants to shoot the basketball, you know, that's it. It's a lost art of, of development down there. And it's, you know, still to this day, the most unstoppable shot. If you, you know, have, have the right footwork, again, base and balance to get a jump hook off, it's unstoppable. Um, but it's just, again, bigs in today's game are, you know, screener, rollers, you know, finish just around the rim, dump off passes, offensive rebound, putbacks. You know, there aren't too many bigs where, I mean, even in the NBA where you're just feeding the ball in time and again, playing with your back to the basket, you know? So it's, I think the style of play, like, you know, has lends itself where, again, bigs, you're not really throwing the ball inside as much, unfortunately. Yeah. 
So jumping back to your college career, there, there was you know the the highlight, the 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 big win was was against Utah. You know, stacked nationally ranked squad with with you know three future NBA pros. Kind of, can you uh, go through your memories of that game uh, in particular? Yeah, I mean, it would be as you said, probably the biggest college win of my career. Utah ranked fourth, third in the country. Um, it was on ESPN Big Monday game, the late game on, on the Big Monday. Um, you know, I think we had 12, 13,000, you know, fans basically packed the arena. You know, Utah were really good that year. Keith Van Horn, Michael Doliak, Andre Miller, you know, three players who had unbelievable NBA career, careers. And obviously Rick Majerus, who, you know, one of the best college coaches ever. Um, really tough. And, you know, I just remember we were down at halftime, probably about 10 points, something like that. Um, in the second half, it started to get away from us a little bit. And, and I think it was about eight minutes, seven, eight minutes to go. We're down 12, 13, 14 a little bit. And, you know, we hit a couple of shots. Crowd got into it. We got rolling. And they missed. And we had the momentum. And we ended up, you know, winning, uh, pulling out and winning. Um, and one of those moments, you know, the – Crowd rushed the court. Everyone's jumping around. TV cameras are there. It's just, uh, just an unbelievable experience. You did uh, all four years at um, at Wyoming. You know, now do you feel like there is much? I mean, I don't actually know the figures, but it feels like um, a lot more players transfer now. There's, there's, there's very, few, especially when I'm talking about British players. There, like, it always surprises me when there's a player that stays at a Division One school for the entire four years, and when they graduate, I'm right. like, wow, they actually did that for the entire four years. Do you think that's something that's changed over the years in terms of mentality? Why do you think there? And if you do, why do you think there is? There has been an increase in transfers. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's definitely changed the mentality. You know, I. My my four years, you know, it was uncommon that you transfer. You know, you stuck it out, you played all, all four years, and it that's what it was. Um, whereas now, you look at the transfer list the last six seven years for Division One. I, I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, you're talking every year the numbers are higher and higher. You know, I I think this year it's was it 800, 800 kids transferred out of Division One programs. Um, and I think it's just going to increase when the NCAA puts in the new transfer rule that will come into effect next year, where you get the one-time one uh, waiver, so you can transfer from D1 to D1 without having to sit out across the board. And that comes in so next that, season? That comes. They were talking about bringing it in this year, but it got voted down, but it's going to come in next year. And that's going to, I mean, it's already craziness with the transfer you know transfers now it will go off the charts next year when it's you don't have to sit out now at present that you can get some waivers where you don't have to sit out when you transfer d1 to d1 if there's a coaching change and you know and the new coaching staff comes in you don't know them you'll transfer to another school you'll get a waiver where you don't have to sit out that's been in the last few years but again, this one-time transfer rule that will come in next year is going to be like the wild, wild west. And really how it will affect, especially, you know, at the mid-major level like us and down, you know, the high-major schools are going to try and pick off the best players from, you know, like our level at the mid-major and low-major to, to, to bring them in. And I, I don't think, I think it will be, really be uncommon for kids to stay all four years. But I think... You know, it's the mentality. The mentality of kids have changed to, 
you know, you see it on the AAU circuit, all these kids, if, you know, and their parents, if they're not playing as much as they should, or they'll move to a different team and then move to a different team and they won't fight through adversity or work harder, compete better, get better, develop to outplay the person who's getting that court time. And that, because of that mentality, it's, you know, it's in the college game now. I mean, obviously there are some kids that move because, you know, they're just maybe not at the division one level, you know, division two is, is the better level where they can have more, more success. But there's a lot of kids in that first year or second year won't fight for their place. They just, okay, take the easy, quick fix. I'm going to go here and hopefully it's better there. And then it's not better there. And they jump around and before you know it, the college career is over and they haven't had the success or the experience that they were hoping for. Do you think it's a struggle because a lot of kids think, well, every every kid wants to be a superstar rather than uh, kids really embracing the role and being like, you know what, I'm only going to play eight minutes a game, but I'm going to be the best I can be in eight minutes a game. Basketball is just going to be a thing I do for four years rather than I'm going to be a future NBA MVP or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, all kids, I mean, they all come, come you know, even... Uh, you know, in our program, the kids recruit, when I recruit them, well, what's your, what's your goal? You know, is it to play four years of college and then get your degree and work or is it to be a pro, whatever? And everyone, every, every kid, I want to be a pro, want to be a pro, you know, and, but you've got to have that want, that work ethic, you know, being a pro starts at that age. It's not, okay, I'm going into my senior year, I'm going to act and work like a pro. You have that mentality from from day one, and you know again, some of these kids don't aren't honest with themselves when they look in the mirror, or aren't realistic at their level, how good they are. You know, be the best role player that you can be. Play 12 minutes a game, come off the bench, and and be be the best player in that role to help the team win, and being content with that. But it's again how the game has gone, transformed, and especially over here. You know, it's a lot of one-on-one play, individual play. And again, I go back to the AAU circuit. That's how the game is played. You know, it's the one-on-one ISO basketball, and it's all about scoring and getting buckets, you know. And again, it's that mentality coming into college. And, it, you know, some kids adapt and, and the light bulb goes off, you know, and be that role player, you know, play your part for the good of the team and make that sacrifice. But some kids don't and uh, you know, they don't have success and end up transferring and you know, it's unfortunate. Have you seen over the years, uh, you know, at Montana state in your experience of recruiting British players, do you feel like there's been a difference in the talent level, the skill level over the years, or do you think that it's kind of stayed roughly about the same? Um, I think generally it's got better. You know, there is a lot of talent, um, you know, and it kind of comes in, it seems like it comes in waves, you know, you have a couple of years where there's a lot of talent, you know, the talent pool's pretty deep, um, and maybe then have a year or two where it's not so much and it comes back. But I think, you know, overall across the board, players are, um, they're getting better, you know, better coaching, you know, obviously with the EABL, the academy set up. Uh, I think has definitely helped, you know, obviously Masco, Charmwood, Barkin, uh, uh, you know, academies like that have a fantastic setup and you see the number of kids, you know, at that talent level getting to division one level or division two, you know, and having success 
here in the States or going into Europe. But uh, yeah, I think in my 10 years of coaching here in the States, it's getting better every year. If you were to talk about uh, common threads of weaknesses that you see in British players uh, as a whole, as just a generalization, uh, are there any that stick out when you're comparing them to, you know, whether it's their American counterparts or or their sort of European counterparts? Um, I think the the first one is um, the competitiveness of kids. Now, obviously, there are a ton of British players that really are, you know, compete and love to compete but it's you have that different edge here in the states it's that american mentality i think <clears throat> you know in in england a lot it's you know be you know the graceful loser or if you don't win to but it's it's you know are you are you truly true competitive? you know do you get you know that you don't like to lose are you you know a lot accepting losing or or hopefully I'm explaining it the right right way, but that, that mentality, that really dog mentality, chip on your shoulder, I'm going to compete, I'm not losing, that, that mentality down to the core. Um, and I think that's a big thing, that's a big shock for a lot of English lads when they make that transition over to the States of that mentality. Now, obviously there are a lot of English lads that, that have it, you know, the ones that come out, I remember Ryan Martin, unbelievable, I mean, he was a dog, you know, unbelievable luke nelson i mean you know cavell bigby williams uh you know and thankfully jabril and armin with us are super competitive um but i think uh, you know as a generalization that would be the big thing that sticks out to me when i you know when i'm back in england and i go watch practices um you know watch kids play that's the biggest thing that sticks out is the true competitive nature of practice or a game you know do you think, uh, just sticking on the recruiting side of things, do you think that, um, well, I feel like now, back, uh, you know, more than a few years ago, it was almost seemed much more of a requirement for kids to go to high school in the States at some point to get that exposure before going to college, where now there's way more kids that are able to stay at EABL schools, you know, whether it's for two years or three years, and then go directly to the US from the UK. Do you think that's... Um, you know, a, a symptom of, of the UK game sort of getting better or an, or, or an increased level of education around maybe that high school basketball isn't the be-all and end-all. You know, I've, I've, there's some obviously levels of high school basketball which really aren't what I think the perception generally is. Um, right. Yeah, kind of where do you sit on that sort of debate? Do you think that, you know, kids are in a good situation now with the ABL academies to be able to just stay in the UK until they're ready to fully go to college? Yeah, I think, you, you know, kind of... Both pathways are good. You know, it's it depends on the kid and, and what he's looking for. You know, obviously, in, in, with today, with social media, you know, that present, there's nowhere really to hide. You know, college coaches can see all the videos of the English kids, generate interest, make calls. You know, I know, you know, the UK does get heavily recruited by, you know, a lot of Division One or, or colleges, um, you know, US colleges in general. But, you know, in terms of the prep school route, yeah, it can be great, you know, and I've, I completely understand it, you know, of a kid doing a year over here, <clears throat> I mean, coming to the US, US, playing a year of prep school, playing at a higher level, getting Americanized, um, and then obviously increasing his exposure, you know, to every basically, you know, all college coaches here in the US, whereas obviously 
the pool of colleges is that much smaller that do recruit the UK um, year in, year out. So you can definitely use it to your advantage, you know, with the prep school, you know, there are prep schools that have great programs, great setups, really do a great job with their kids. But there are a ton of prep schools that aren't organized. It's more a money-making machine, kind of scam machine. And the kids ultimately suffer. They don't have the experience that they were promised. Um, you know, I've, you know, there's a, I'm not going to say his name, but there's an English kid last year ended up at two prep schools. One closed, and then obviously had to went to a different one, and with the COVID had to come home. But his experience wasn't great with the prep school, um, that prep school route. So you have to be, you know, do your homework, do your due diligence. You know, have to educate yourself and make sure if you do go that prep school um, like path that you're in, in in the right situation for you. Because there's been, you know, we know, you know, I know horror stories you know, of so many English kids that have got bad advice, been put in a situation like that, prep school or college situation, high school, where, you know, they just can't have success. They're not just not going to have success there. And ultimately they suffer and end up back in the UK, you know, worse for wear, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, and there is now, I think there is a growing body of players that have, that have proven that you don't need to go to the States first before you go to college. It's like you can stay in the UK, you can Absolutely. be developed here just as well um, before making that jump. So, yeah, jumping back to your back to your college career. So, senior year, you obviously, you got injured, uh, a knee injury, kind of, yeah, what happened with that? Um, and then tying that into sort of turning pro, uh, how do you think it impacted um, your, I guess your rookie year, like the offers that were on the table, do you think it impacted it at all? Right. Um, yeah, kind of what are your memories around it all? Yeah, so, you know, I basically pretty much started all of my sophomore and junior years at Wyoming. And then my senior year, it was kind of right at the start of practice, just had a knee injury. Um, and never really got healthy during my senior year. Had my knee scoped at the start of the year. Just, it wasn't quite right. You know, missed some games, played some, missed some, didn't play as much, um, which was obviously for a senior year, very frustrating because, you, you know, you want to go out on a high. Um, got healthy after the season, had another kind of scope on my knee, got healthy, everything was fine. Um, but I think, you know, I did obviously have a negative effect on turning pro, you know, offers, you know, contract offers. Um, you know, I'd like to have... I, I do genuinely believe if I was healthy, I would have maybe had a you know higher level teams or been able to go to a higher league, higher level straight out of college. You know, it ended up being I ended up playing at the Birmingham Bullets, but it was really Birmingham, and then there was uh, a team in Austria that you know put a pretty good you know offer on the table to me, but I ended up uh, signing with the Birmingham Bullets that first year. What made you, you know, like now we're in a situation where I, I do feel like a lot of players, if they've got an option between somewhere on the continent uh, or somewhere in, in in the BBL, they will always choose uh, Europe, regardless of lots of other <coughs> factors, just because of just that sort of weird perception, which I do think is changing, but but uh, slowly, but um, right. but it's kind of there. What made you decide to sign in Birmingham as opposed to Austria? Well, there's a couple of things. Back then, the league was great. You know, it's the Budweiser League. You know, it was sponsored. I mean, there were great teams, you know, playing in majority of the teams were playing in the arenas with good crowds. I mean, the level of play, if you look back at the players at that time, it was a great league. And it's funny because 
that summer when I first played with the England national team in the summer after, you know, I got done at Wyoming, Nick Nurse was the assistant coach. And obviously he just got done coaching at the Bullets and knew that they were talking to me and kind of did a great sales job on the structure of the team, the fans, you know, the players, Tony Dorsey, Nigel Lloyd, um, you know, and the whole setup and, you know, could be a good platform to, you know, plan the BBL for a year, possibly two, to then move on into, you know, mainland Europe and, and play at a higher level. That that sort of era of the BBL, uh, you know, late 90s through to the early 2000s, kind of what many consider the, the heyday, uh, where you had the, right. you know, the rich owners and a lot of money flowing in and out of the sport. But, yeah. you know, a lot of people maintain that, you know, during that time, it was it was very shaky foundations. A lot of teams were, were just losing money. Um, do you have memories of that? Were you aware of that at all? Like in terms of just, I guess, the Birmingham situation, was it a lot of tickets that were being given away as freebies? It weren't actually paying customers coming to the games? Like you know, what was your recollection as a player? Yeah, I mean, you know, Harry Robleski was the owner and he did a great job. You know, he was a great salesman, you know, really promoted the team. Uh, you know, we had a really good fan base, you know, with the Bullets. You know, we played at the NEC and the NIA, you know, good arenas. We had good crowds. You know, more, I mean, I think we averaged about 4,000. Now, obviously, looking back, I know a lot of tickets were given away, but there was never any issue, you know, how the players were treated, you know, our, our setup in terms of housing, cars, getting paid on time. You know, everything was great. There was never an issue. Um, looking back, it was, you know, Harry really did a good job running the team. Now, obviously, I don't know the bottom line if he was losing money, things of that sort. But, you know, my experience, how I was treated, how the players were treated was 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 great. The Bosman ruling had come into effect, uh, what, about a year? Maybe, yeah, maybe the year it before. Was, yeah, it was the summer. No, it was right when I came. I think it was right when I came out. Right. I got, because... That, I got lucky at that time that the Bosman ruling came out in that spring, I think, and then I signed in the summer. So, you know, that those first few years when that ruling had passed, you know, my value having the English passport really rose because that second year I got, you know, I went from the BBL right into, you know, the top league in Greece and having that passport really helped in that process. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to just ask kind of how you think that affected sort of how how do you sort of seeing it from I guess being in the league that season I've been kind of speaking to various different people about it and there was a whole thing where the owners essentially thought that all of the top British talent was going to leave for Europe um so they were scared of it well that's what they said and then as a result of that they increased the number of Americans so the league that was kind of what began the league being dominated by Americans and all of a sudden there was a lot less spots for British players I guess from your vantage point, how did you see it affecting um, British basketball, you know, your fellow colleagues, players, teammates and the league as a whole? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, with, with that rule change, with the Bosman ruling, like I just said, you know, our value, you know, the top British players to go into Europe, obviously not be classed as a, you know, a foreign player, um, our value increased. And, you know, the the money that was on the table then, especially, like I said, that first, you know, three or four, five years for Bosman players, you know, in my case, and obviously talking with other British players at the time, it was too big a difference to, you know, stay in the BBL, unfortunately. I mean, it would have been great. I'd have loved to have been able to play at home and, and, and for my whole career. Absolutely. You know, but, 
the just the, the financial side of things, the difference was too great and it was, you know, too much to turn down. Can you give us any type of ballpark figures about what you could earn in Europe compared to what you could earn in the BBL? Uh, I mean, I mean, mine, I ended up, you know, practically doubling, I mean, doubled for sure what I made in the BBL. Absolutely. Actually, it was actually, it was more than that. Um, I'm trying to think about it. It was probably, yeah, four times. I ended up making four times more my year in Greece than I did in the BBL. Wow. So again, it's just too much. Now, I wasn't making that much compared to, you know, some of the, some of the players, but, you know, but again, you know, you look at the top British players, like, you know, obviously I'm kind of in the same areas like Andy Betts, who was one of my favorite British players of all time. Unbelievable player, unbelievable teammate. I mean, you know, obviously he was playing at that high, high level in, in Europe, in the Euro League. I mean, it's not even in the same ballpark, you know, so. Yeah. The other thing, just in terms of just culturally with, with basketball kind of in that era, um, I remember you saying that uh, one of the memories that sticks out for you playing for the national team was your home, I think it was your home debut versus Israel at the at the MEN in Manchester and there was mm -hmm. like 7,000 fans there. What do you think yeah. changed, like what was different back then that allowed the national team to get you know, crowds of that number compared to today where, you know, even in the 2012 Olympics where you had Luau and Pops, I remember in Sheffield, they struggled to even sell a thousand tickets, you know, it was just, it was crazy. Yeah, I mean, not really, I mean, I think, I don't know, like I said, at the time, the BBL or the Budweiser League at that time, you know, there was multiple games on Sky every week, you know, I remember, and we had a great slot in terms of on the weekend, Saturday, Sunday, that, you know, a basketball game would come on immediately after the premiership football game. So maybe, you know, people watching on Sky, you know, they even had the kind of half hour like highlight show on Sky as well. But that having that, you know, media coverage, I'd like to think definitely helped, um, you know, but uh, the standard of play, like I said, the league was strong. You know, it was everyone was in the arenas. So I had a kind of more professional feel rather than being in you know, gyms, you know, sports halls. Um, you know, I think the standard of play was really good. So I think those factors, I think, contributed to, you know, better exposure, better crowds for the national team. Your your years with the with the England national team. So it was it was what ninety seven through to two thousand and four ish. Um, yeah. Which I think was 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 it was it under Laszlo Nemeth the whole that entire period. Yeah, the the entire period that because you know. Yeah, it was 97 when I came out. And then obviously they had that year where financially, you know, it, it disappeared, the national team, for a year or two. And then obviously came back with the, with GB, with Chris Finch, you know, and obviously the push for the Olympics. What were your standout memories of your time with the England program uh, during those years? I mean, obviously... The setup wasn't great, you know, with the national team, obviously the lack of funds wasn't so professional. We were always, basically we'd have a week together and then go try and play, you know, and, and, and qualify for the European Championships, play games. You know, you have a week, maybe two weeks to, to practice, to come together and try and play. And just the organization, I get it, the lack of funds just didn't adhere to having a proper training camp and being around each other for, for weeks on end. But... 
you know, Laszlo was great. He was a great coach, really, really cared about the team, the players. You know, as I mentioned to you previously, you know, I know he kind of paid for things out of his own pocket to make sure that we had, you know, we're treated the right way, whether it was meals, whether it was gear, shoes, whatever. Absolutely. He did everything he could for us, you know, and 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 he was such a great coach to play play for. Um, but, you know, we had a lot of talent. We really, really had a lot of talent at that time, too. And again, frustrating that we didn't get better results. You know, we had flashes, but just I still go back through the lack of preparation that we were able to have really affected us. But, you know, you're talking, obviously, Steve Bucknell, Roger Huggins, um, you know, obviously, John Amici, I mean, Andy Betts, I mean, really, really good players. And, you know, we had some good moments, but didn't achieve the results, obviously, that we wanted to. But it's really my fond memories was was the travel, the camaraderie, you know, uh, the locker room, being around. They were great guys. And, and being in those situations, you know, where, again, you know, how we traveled and we're on a minivan in the middle of traveling from like Austria to, I don't even know, Slovenia or Slovakia where we're going. And there's 15 of us on a minibus through Laszlo's, one of his friends in Europe. I mean, great memories, great memories, you know? So that's what I take away from it. Are there any standout games, uh, victories that, that come to mind when you think about your time in England? Um, like I, I remember, you know, we, one big win, we were in Latvia on, on the road, um, you know, hostile crowd, and it was a big, important game in the qualifying. And we, we ended up beating them Latvia in Latvia. And Andy Betts was unbelievable that night. I think he had like 30 points, unbelievable. But that was a big win, important win for us. I remember, you know, hostile crowd at the end of the game, they kind of threw some beer bottles that smashed on the floor. We had to run out through the tunnel. Um, but you know, big game there. Um, trying to think others that stand out. Again, it's quite a while ago. But it would just be kind of some individual individual wins. You know, obviously we never qualified for a European Championship or anything of that sort. And then you were involved with the GB program uh, in the first two years uh, when it was yeah. kind of restarted up uh, after winning yeah. the London 2012 Olympic bid. Um, I guess, what are your memories of, of that first training camp in 2006 uh, how did you feel the program differed? Obviously, it had a considerably more money than the than the England program did. Um, how did you feel it differed? And kind of, yeah, what are your memories of those those sort of early formative years of of the reincarnation of the program? Yeah, I mean, it was great. I mean, obviously, it would have been a year or two with no national team stuff, and I, you know, I was back back in the states in the summer. You know, I was actually back in Wyoming um, for the summer when I got the call from Chris Finch and was like, hey, would you know? GB programs being put together. Would you be interested? Would you come to training camp? And absolutely yes, no, no doubt. And having that conversation with him, obviously the financial backing was night and day compared to how it was. You know, and his vision for you know getting the the program, the, the national team, the GB team back on its feet. His vision, what he, how he wanted it organized, uh, what he wanted to do. Again, that's how it should have been from day one always like that um, going to that first camp uh, you know Luol wasn't there he came the next year but again just the professionalism the organization where we stayed how we practiced the, the preparation you know we had weeks of preparation instead of you know a week um, 
you know, the coach and staff that was put together. I mean, just everything. It's it's how it should have been, for, you know, in the first place. So it was a, a breath of fresh air and, and very exciting to be a part of. That that first year, who who were, you know, some of the other players in the squad? I'm pretty, I feel like from memory, it was Drew Sullivan and Nate Ranking yep. from that first year that ended that's up right. making the London 2012 Olympics, right? Yeah, that's right. There's those two. Roger Huggins was still there. Um, I think Steve Hansel was on, was on the, still around. Delmi, obviously, as well. Yeah. Um, it was kind of still that us at that time, the kind of older generation, whereas the new, you know, Robert Archibald, Luol, uh, you know, those younger guys, Eric Botang, you know, Joel Freeland, those guys it hadn't quite emerged yet. Yeah. You know, uh, Mike Bernard was 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 around a, a, as well then. So those were those were the guys um, that, that first year. When Luol came in the next year, what? what... You know, what was your knowledge of him before he came in? And then when he came to training camp practice, like seeing him up close, obviously at that point, so what was it, 2007? So he'd been in the, he'd been in the, he'd been in the league a couple of years. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So right. yeah, like what were your memories of him? How clear, clear was it? What a talent I, he was? Yeah, obviously. Been, yeah. I mean, obviously I didn't know him, you know, obviously knew about him, obviously. Um, and then, he, you know, there was a talk he was going to come that first year and I think it was, insurance or something couldn't quite get right level insurance or the cost whatever it didn't work out unfortunately but then he came that second year we actually had training camp at the img academy in florida is where where we had training camp we were there two weeks yeah two three weeks or whatever i mean again great great setup the img academy campus is 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 unreal down there in sarasota but came and and you know you know, you don't really, I don't know him, you know, you think, oh, this is a big NBA star, but the most humble person, you know, at that, of that level of that stature I've been around down to earth, just a normal guy, um, very humble, very kind, went out of his way, you know, with, with teammates and just a, you know, obviously super talented player. Uh, you know, you saw it from the first training session, you know, here's this six, eight long wing, um, but the thing is, he, that impressed me, obviously, was his competitiveness, how hard he practiced, how hard he worked. But it, was, it wasn't flash. It was efficient. It was fundamental. And he, he kept the game simple. And with his you know, God-given athletic ability, his, his physical tools, I mean, he was an unbelievable player. But a great teammate to be around. You know, he wasn't selfish, wasn't flashy. It wasn't me, me, me. It was all about the team. Um, but his his drive, his work ethic, and his competitiveness in practice, he set the tone for everything. You know, it filtered down. And obviously, Andy Betts, you know, Robert Archibald, who had played in the NBA. I mean, obviously, they were leaders as well. But Luol was, uh, you know, different animal altogether. Was there part of you that, you know, obviously at that point, everyone had an eye on London 2012. Were you kind of thinking, well, you know, you're coming to the end of your career. It's a, it's a long shot. You know, how... Yeah. Yeah, how difficult was that for you to kind of deal with in your head? Yeah, I mean, it was a long shot. And, you know, obviously, deep down, I knew I wasn't going to make it. You know, and I knew, but obviously, it was still that little glimmer of hope. Oh, maybe I can be 12th or 13th man and just get there, you know. Um, but, you know, at that point, I wasn't I wasn't good enough. I was down, you know, at the end of my career, I was, what, early 30s then. Um, you know, I just with the with the standard of players that were again coming in the younger generation, I I just I wasn't good enough, unfortunately, at that point. 
But yeah. it would have been nice if it was a couple of years earlier. Maybe I'd have squeezed in and, and been able to uh, have that experience, but unfortunately didn't make it. Tough. So after you did your year in Birmingham, that was, you obviously then went and signed in Greece. Um, you know, everyone that plays in Greece has got some crazy stories. <laughs> uh, is there any? Yeah. Are there any for you that stick out of of your time there? Um, gosh. So I remember we playing Panathinaikos in Panathinaikos. You know, and big crowd. You know, they're playing the Olympic facility there. And I was on the court, and you know, they had Dino, Roger, Bodoroga, I and mean, obviously they were stacked like they are every year. And there was two, you know, um, Dino, Roger, I'd obviously just come back from playing with the Boston Celtics, um, you know, and obviously had a really good NBA career. And we actually had, you know, we had an American big guy um, who played at Arkansas, um, you know, who kind of got drafted a really bit, but Dino Roger kind of gave him 30 without break, actually me and this kid 30 without breaking a sweat. I mean, it was men against boys. And I remember just watching like, wow, that's, he was unreal. He made everything look so easy. And then Bodoroga, who's one of my favorite European players of all time. I mean, he was so smooth, so good. But I remember he was coming across the lane one time. I thought, okay, so I, give him one right across the chops, you know, and obviously picked up a foul, but the whole crowd, you know, the Greek crowd just went wild and started throwing like coins at me on, on from the baseline. I was like, okay, I, I won't do that again. But, um, but the crowd, I mean, the crowds were great. I remember playing Olympiakos at home, you know, our gym, I was playing for uh, Paul and Patra at the time was, you know, probably about 4,000 people. It was a smaller gym, but Olympiakos, obviously it's packed. And it, we lost in double overtime. And there was a critical call in the second overtime where it should have been a jump ball, but the referee called a foul um, for Olympiakos player. And the whole crowd, I mean, tried to kind of rush the floor. You know, they had the police in there holding them back. And again, throwing coins, batteries, phones at the referee. Um, it's just, I mean, those stories that everyone says about playing in Greece I mean, very passionate, but very wild, but fun to be in those environments. Obviously, over the course of your, the rest of your career, you know, you did stints in, in Belgium, in Italy, um, the Czech Republic. Like, what are the standout, I guess, memories um, from the remainder of your, your European career? I'm aware of time here, so I'm kind of trying to wrap it up in a, uh, a sort of overviewing way rather than going into each year in detail. Yeah, I mean, very lucky, I mean, to, to play... At that level, you know, um, in, in those countries, in the, those leagues. I mean, obviously playing three years in Italy and Serie A was great. Again, just the standard of basketball, the the level. Um, but you know, even just the lifestyle, living in Italy. I mean, I mean, it's there's worse places to be. You know, I was very lucky, but the basketball was unbelievable. You know, and I, you know, at that level, I was more of a role player. I was a backup big. Started some games. I was just a solid pro. At, at that level, but again, playing good, you know, Scavellini and Bologna and, you, you know, the big, the big teams, I mean, playing against those, at that level, those players, unbelievable experience. Uh, Belgium, I, my three years in Belgium, I, I played well, you know, really well in Belgium and re again, really enjoyed living there. I mean, Belgium was a great league. Uh, again, great setup, money was good. And that level, I actually, you know, 
started. I played a lot in those three years. I played really well. You know, the Bundesliga in Germany, um, I played well in that league. Uh, but again, just great experiences, different different countries, coaches, style of basketball, you know, playing against, you know, really good players. I mean, just unbelievable experiences. Very lucky to have played at that level. The other uh, surprise team that I saw on your CV, which I wasn't aware of, was London United. Um, yeah. So how did that come yeah. about? Because obviously at that point you'd you'd been playing in Europe. You you just the last season before you'd been in Italy, uh, and I think that season did you even complete the season there? You ended up in Czech Republic for the second half of the season. Yeah, so I was there for three months. Um, so I got done in Italy, and it's just the summer where you know I didn't get the contract that I wanted in in Europe. Had some offers wasn't what I wanted or where I wanted to play. And I'm older at that point, you know, I'm, I'm married. I'm, you know, my first daughter was born. So I obviously been a bit more picky. Um, so decided, okay, I'll, you know, play for London United, had the kind of get out clause that if a team from mainland Europe came, I could go. So, you know, that's Tony Garbaletto was the coach. Um, you know, Junior Junior Williams was our point guard. I mean, we had a, a nice little team, you know, really did. Um, that was the first year of London United. Uh, you know, Jack Majeski was the owner, general manager, put it together. Um, and it was, yeah, it was good. It was good. It was really good. You know, I wish I could have stayed, but then I got the offer from the Czech Republic. Again, it was too big a difference to turn down. Um, so I went to the Czech Republic. When you compare the BBL in that 2000, so that was 2006-2007 season compared to, uh, you know, your Birmingham Bullets years, 97-98, over the course of those 10 years, obviously it changed quite a lot. Um, yeah. You know, what was it like to have seen it, you know, in, in those, in in its heyday, as people say, yeah. compared to compared to that era? Yeah, I mean, there was still a lot of, you know, talented players in, in the league. You know, there really was a lot of talent, but it was more the structure, the setup, you know, playing again in sports halls rather than arenas um just the organizational side of things and obviously you know in, in those years there was no games on sky bbc you know whatever so it was you know it was i get it was hard you know financially for team for teams to you know increase the wages you know have the right facilities you know the the structure the setup um but it was unfortunate to see you know that first year where i played where it's the budweiser league you know, that's what it should be, can be, could be. And it kind of dropped off. I mean, again, still a lot of talent in the league, but just the organizational side of things wasn't, was, uh, had really decreased. And then after that stint in Czech Republic, you ended up uh, sort of doing the final three years of your career with the Everton Tigers, which yeah. um, was a whole situation in itself. A lot of people have got various different stories about what happened there. Um can you sort of give us your take on on the situation? Was that the first year of the franchise? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so exactly, first year of the franchise. You know, I got done in the Czech Republic, um, and again, I just that was my last year with the national team. So I got got done, and I actually my youngest daughter was being born right at that time. I remember I was actually at the airport in Edinburgh. We played Holland in Edinburgh, and the team was getting ready to fly to Belarus, and I'm about to get on the plane. My wife calls water's broken, you got to come. So I had to leave, literally go get on a plane for the birth of my second child. Anyway, so we got done with that national team stuff, uh, games. And then um, Everton called me. And obviously I'm from Southport. It's 20 minutes away from Liverpool. 
you know, new franchise connected with the football club, would I be interested? And I, you know, I was kind of, again, I'm, I'm, always, I'm 34 at this point. You know, I know I've got a couple more years in me and I'm thinking, okay, I can live in my hometown in Southport, drive to Liverpool. Uh, you know, my family's in Southport. It wouldn't be the worst thing. So I ended up kind of signing with them like I did with London United. Okay, I'll come. I didn't have the contract offers from Europe that I was looking for. And I get, I'm kind of starting to wind down my, my career. You know, so I was like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll play for Everton. Henry Mooney was the coach. You know, for like Delmi Herriman was on the team. So we talked about it. Um, so I did that. And at Christmas, it was, well, it was just before Christmas, actually. I think it was November of that first season. The general manager, Henry, put a two-year extension on the table. And actually, it was it was pretty good money. It really was at the time. Um, and I'm thinking, okay, for that money, two years, take me to 36. I can live at home. I've kind of come full circle, you know, with my wife, with my kids. Yep, I'll do it. So I, I signed and, you know, finished my career there. Did you end up getting every paycheck that was in your contract? <laughs> so that last year, so <laughs> the last year, the wheel started to kind of fall <laughs> off financially a little bit. Um, and so I didn't. So my last year, uh, I'm still owed some money, which obviously I'll never get. And it was probably two paychecks, I think, the last two months. Okay. Yeah. So so thankfully, I'd, I was done. I knew my last year was my last year. I could have maybe eked out another year or two, but I wasn't playing that well. My knees had gone. You know, I was old. I was old. Um, so, so thankfully, I got out at the right time. And you finished as a playoff champion, right? Yeah, I mean, again, full circle. Finished up. My last game was in Birmingham, you know, at, at the NIA. Uh, won the playoffs. Um, again, we had a really, really good team. You know, Olu Babalolo is one of my favorite. I mean, Favorite British players, unbelievable talent. He was our captain, uh, but it was a it, it was nice to go out a winner, you know, win your final game. And then the other thing that sort of happened whilst you were at Everton was you started coaching right with the academy side, uh, and that yeah. was I, I was I think was your first foray into sort of getting into the coaching side. You kind of knew you wanted to be a coach. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I knew obviously the last few years, you know, about halfway through my career, I knew I wanted to to coach, whether it was in the states or. Britain or, you know, in England or in Europe. I wanted to be a coach. Um, and so that last kind of Tony, Tony Garbaletto kind of, I wouldn't say I was player coach, but, you know, we talked and he let me do some video scout stuff, things like that. And he really helped me in those years start that mental process of thinking like a coach, talking about things on the coaching side, which really helped me. And then Everton started the academy team. So... They asked me to do that. I wanted to do that to get to coaching, to start that, getting that coaching experience. Um, and it was great. Some talented kids started that off. Um, but then ultimately, you know, like I said, my wife, I met my wife at, you know, at Wyoming at school. And I dragged her around Europe for 12 years or whatever. And it was like, all right, we'll go back to the States. And I started the process of trying to get into college coaching, get, get my foot in the door somewhere that last year I was, you know, I was playing at Everton because like I said, I knew it was going to be my last year. So started that process and, and lucky enough, I uh, 
got got in at uh, the junior college level at L- Lamar Community College in Colorado. So you did you did three years at Lamar before the Montana State position came up, right? Yep. Yep, that's right. How was the differences between you know the coaching at the JUCO level compared to you know now Division One level? Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's totally different. I mean. <laughs> You know, the JUCO level, you like literally, especially as assistant, you got to do everything. Like I was driving the bus to, on the road games, you know, the, the school bus on the road games. I have to do the laundry for the players, you know, after practice every day, you know, still recruit, class checks, grade checks. You do it all. But it was a great learning experience to have your hands on everything and get that experience uh, at the JUCO level, you know. And, and, you know, as a player, you've got to be hungry to, to be at junior college and the same thing as a coach, you know, it's, it's a great learning experience. Um, you know, at, at, at the level, you know, we had two English kids there, Shorey, uh, Adenikin and Matt Sheriff, um, who both Shorey went to play at Seattle and Matt played at an AI school in, um, in, in Illinois and Chicago, but, uh, great memories, great memories and really prepared me for life at the division one level. Uh, you know, and here at the Division One level, I mean, it's it's serious business. Obviously, it's it is business. The pressure to win um, it, it is huge. Uh, obviously, if you don't win, you don't have a job. I mean, it's that that simple. Um, a lot of pressure to to recruit. You know, to bring in talented players. Um, but it's it is night and day the difference between D1 and, and JUCO. One of the things you you said previously is that one day you would love to coach the Great Britain senior men's national team. You know, has there been any conversations about getting you involved with the Great Britain uh, sort of setup at all? Uh, you know, is this still something that you aspire to and you're thinking about and you'd like to be involved with? Absolutely. I mean, I'd absolutely love to be involved with the Great Britain program in any way, whether it's the men's team under 18, 16, under 20, whatever. Just to be a part of that would be very proud to, you know, represent our country and, and be involved in that setup. Haven't really had conversations really um haven't been you know i have talked to steve i actually talked to steve bucknell um it was last year about you know hey can i i'd love to be involved in in the summer whether it's volunteer i'll just come over whatever if i you know be involved in some way would would be great and apparently i missed the deadline to apply or something but in the future you know i'd love to be involved if that's something that's possible, would would be an honor, would be great. And yes, it still would be a goal of mine to one day be the Great Britain senior men's you know, head coach if possible. Awesome. Right. Some quick fire questions just to, to, to wrap up. Um, starting <clears throat> with uh, the best British junior player you've ever seen. Ryan Richards. Good shout. I'd agree with you on that one. He, yeah, unbelievable. He was 17. I first played against him in Belgium when he was with Chris Finch at Mons. It was the first time I saw him in preseason. Played against each other, and I'm like, I, I mean, holy, unbelievable. Unbelievable talent. Unbelievable at that age. Uh, the toughest player you've ever had to guard? Tim Duncan. When did you play, <laughs> when did you play him? So, <laughs> I played in the World Student Games in Japan. Okay. And USA was in our group, and it was Tim Duncan, Iverson, Ray Allen, Kerry Kittles, Athel uh, Harrington. I mean, it was it was legit, and Tim Duncan would what, be the hardest player. What was the final score of that game? 
So it was reasonably close to off time. And then Iverson and Kerry Kittles and Ray Allen had a field day, the second steals. They just turned it up. And I think we got beat by like 35. Wow. And it was one of their closest games in the whole tournament. But actually, that's my like big thing. In the box score, I actually scored more than Tim Duncan. So there you go. I have it like framed at home. But, um, but Tim Duncan, um, I tell you, in college, was the hardest person, uh, Danny Fortson at Cincinnati. You know, he's undersized big. He played in the NBA for many years. He was like 6'8", like 260, and he was that undersized, shorter, wide body, and he gave me fits in college. He, he, he was tough. Um, as a pro, uh, yeah, Dino Roger, absolutely. Dino Roger. Uh, your favorite coach or best coach that you played for? Um, best coach I played for? I re- it was um, coach in Italy, Matteo Bonaccioli, who now just became the head coach at Udine. Um, he's, he coached at Bologna. I mean, he's, he might have even coached the national team for a period, but he, I actually played for him in Messina, my first, uh, Messina in my first year in Italy and my last year in Italy at Teramo. Um, he, co- he coached me twice. twice. Just, just a really good coach, tactician, X's and O's, how he viewed the game, how he played. Really enjoyed playing for him. Um, but I, I have a big soft spot for Tony Garbaletto. Uh, you know, I really do. We've always got on. I mean, he was assistant coach on the England team when I first started playing as well after Nick Nurse. So I've known him for a long time. And then obviously getting coached by him at Everton. And, you know, I have a lot of respect. Thinks he's, I think he's a great coach. Um, and again, really helped me a lot on my pathway to becoming a coach. So really, really have a, a big respect for Tony. Do you have a toughest uh, sort of basketball memory, difficult basketball moment? Difficult basketball moment. Um, yeah, I, it would be one of. I remember playing with the national team uh, with Laszlo for England. We were playing a kind of scrimmage, closed door game against Croatia at the NEC, and I tore about I was playing well and I ended up there was a pop in my calf and I tore my calf muscle it felt like I'd been hit like with a golf ball so then you know and I had to go back to my club team and obviously I'm injured and it was late on it was in the it was in like February or something like that and my contract was running you know was up in in May at the end of the season and I didn't play for the rest of the season like I tried to come back and I came back too soon so I was thinking I'm going to be screwed. I'm injured, hadn't played contract year. All right, am I going to, you know, be able to get on another team, make the same money? You know, all those things come into play. But thankfully, the team re-signed me for another year. Uh, but there was that couple of months window when, you know, I was going to be out for quite a while and, you know, uncertain about my next next team or what I was going to do. And then your favorite basketball memory? Oh, favorite basketball memory. Um, gosh, that's tough. I mean, I still go back to that first game with the national team, you know, standing there against Israel with the national anthem playing. I mean, that was a, a great moment. Um, I will say one of my favorite moments when I was playing in Italy, my first year, and we played um, Fortitudo Bologna, who ended up going to the final four of the Euroleague that year. I mean, great team. I mean, 
that stadium is un I mean, it's a perfect basketball arena, six, seven thousand. But you come up from under the floor. So you're in the basement and you come up under the floor and you hear like the, the crowd, the fans, the set. I mean, it was like goosebumps. I mean, it was an unbelievable atmosphere. I mean, I still, you know, playing in that environment. Um, you know, my first obviously college game, you know, my first college game at Wyoming was at Cincinnati in front of 13,000 people. You know, I'm like deer in the headlights. I still remember my first shot. I took a turnaround in the post and like, clanked it off i don't even know if i hit the rim i was so nervous almost broke the backboard but just playing in that environment um i remember oscar robertson was sat courtside um so those you know those kind of memories always stick out and then what do you want uh your sort of legacy to be when people talk about uh you know chris haslam the player um how do you want to be remembered um you know as a player like i said i just that I was, you know, that honest blue collar player. I mean, like I said, I, I think, you know, as a physical player, um, you know, always gave my best. I was uh, to be, you know, thought of as a, as, as a, you know, good player, but, you know, a great teammate, you know, and always played for, for the team. You know, I think that's what I'd like to be, you know, as a player remembered for. Perfect. That's a perfect place to, to wrap it up. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for sticking with it. <laughs> we obviously had a few technical okay. issues at the beginning. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, and we'll stay in touch. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time. No, no problem. Thanks for having me on, Sam. Really appreciate it. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.